Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. Today, I chat with David Christian, and David is an amazing historian who I've actually had on the podcast about a year ago, and he is the co-founder of the Big History Project with Bill Gates, which looks at big history, you know, the field of the history of the universe, from the history of of, uh, the universe um, through the Big Bang and up to the start of the Earth, and then the history of genes and life, and then the history of humans and memes. And today we chat about his new book called Future Stories, which is taking that big history lens, but applying it to the future. So I, I love it. I love it when historians try to try the, try to, you know, predict the future, especially because he looks at these crucial patterns that underlie everything and helps us understand how to think about the future and what we should do going forward, how to collaborate better, how to, in, you know, share information better and things like that. So I think you'll enjoy the episode today with David and uh, let me know if you have any feedback. Thanks. Bye. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Reese Show. I am Reese, the co-founder of Root, and this is my world. And I believe the century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And today, to chat about building that amazing solar punk future, I'm excited to chat with David Christian. David is a historian who has helped found the field of big history. He's written multiple books on the subject, including a book that just came out today. Um, today, my time, you know, yesterday in his Australian time, it's called Future Stories. And we're going to chat about that a bunch today. And also with Bill Gates, he's like the co-founder of this big history project, which has built free online high school courses in the field of big history. David, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Pleasure. Yeah, excited to dive in. And so, yeah, David, maybe to start, you know, you have this amazing new book out, Future Stories, and you just showed us the actual copy uh, that you have in person, which feels really good. So congratulations on that. Could you tell us maybe an overview of the thesis of the book, Future Stories? Yeah. um, Four years ago, I published a book called Origin Story, which was big history. It was a sort of popular attempt at big history. And it's a sort of an attempt to give an overview of the whole of the past, literally going back to the origins of the universe. So it talks about the history of the evolution of the universe itself, of stars, of planets, of life on Earth, and of our own strange species, humanity. Um, And when I, as I've taught big history over the years, I've always felt that if you survey 13.8 billion years of history, the temptation to look into the future is huge. So in my courses, I've always sort of talked a bit about the future, what we mean by the future, and what sort of futures we can plausibly imagine for ourselves and our species. And this book takes the idea of the future more seriously, it's about the future. So origin stories was about the whole of the past. Future stories is really about the sort of stories we tell ourselves as we try to prepare for an uncertain future, whereas origin stories was about the stories we tell ourselves about the past. So I think of it as a sort of, um, if you like, a sort of um, user's guide to the future. Yeah, I love that. Is there a, and, and, and just to kind of like, 
double well one interesting piece is like you said when you start to do these um big history things of 14 billion years you're like well what's going to happen in the next 14 billion um and so i guess i want to before we dive into those specifics what is it like for you as a historian to because like lots of like futurists or tech people will be like this is what we're building in the future blah 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 what do you think what unique angle do you as a historian bring to thinking about the future yeah, very interesting question. And one as I've as I've worked on this book, one of the things that's fascinated me is the resistance of my own tribe, that is to say historians, to thinking about the future. One of the great historiographers, R.G. Collingwood, um, who all most professional historians have read at some time, um, sort of despised thinking about the future. He said, it's ridiculous. Historians should never do it. And he, he once said, if, if you see a historian trying to think about the future, you know something's gone seriously wrong. Well, what he really meant, I think, was that what historians do is they use documents to construct stories about the past. And the problem about the future is there are no documents. Zero. Absolutely none. There have been times in human history where people thought we might be able to glimpse some sort of evidence for the future, but modern science argues that no, uh, we really can't. And what that really means is that one of the most fundamental principles of thinking about the future is the only clues we have to the future lie paradoxically not in the future, they lie in the past. So what that means is I ended up, by the, by the time I'd written this book, I ended up thinking it's actually very weird and bizarre that historians who study the past don't end up spending more time thinking about the future because all the clues about the future lie in the past, as every futurist knows. And therefore, this taboo on historians thinking about the future is actually very foolish, but it's also very understandable because thinking about the future is a very, very different thing from thinking about the past, as Collingwood pointed out. Yeah. And do you think that there is, so when you like, I mean, that makes sense where you're like, oh, what's the primary source? What's the secondary source to understand the past? And it's like, <laughs> there are no primary or secondary sources for the future. When you think about predicting that future, it makes me think, okay, are, are there then like, patterns then that you're kind of seeing the past do whether it's like entropy or whatever that then you push forward into the future or how what kinds of things are you then pulling from the past are they patterns and processes in order to find out then how they go to the future or how do you think about that yeah i, I mean one of the other things that kept striking me as i was writing this book is how weird it is that we don't teach people some of the basic principles of thinking about the future. Now, you know, futurists of various kinds, um, economic forecasters or weather forecasters, they pick up all sorts of tricks about thinking of the future. But we don't teach ordinary ordinary citizens how to how to think about the future. And I think that's really bizarre. But there are there are actually principles, but they're very different from those of, of thinking about the past. And I think actually the most important of all, at least in the modern world, because in the past, one of the principles was that the gods may be able to see the future. So if you can talk to the gods, you may get some insight. And that was the basis for all forms of divination and very important in the past. But modern science just doesn't accept that way of thinking about the future. So, so in modern science, in modern future thinking, 
the fundamental principle is we look at the past and of all the things that happen in the past, we'll see that some are very chaotic, uh, but some are more regular. Now, let me take climate change as an example of this. If you track all the evidence we have about the emission of CO2 into the atmosphere, and then you track changing global temperatures, and then you add in the fact that we have actually know about the chemistry. We know why rising greenhouse gases should raise global temperatures. Now, there we have a very powerful trend in the past, and it's one we can actually track literally over millions of years using things like tiny bubbles in ice cores, which contain little samples of the atmosphere in the past. So there you have an example of a very powerful trend. And that allows climate scientists to say, if we keep pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we have a good expectation that the temperature will increase by this much. So that's a powerful prediction. Now, but related to it, is a much less powerful prediction. There are many processes which are very hard to predict. And perhaps the most important category of those processes is, the, is processes that take place as a result of the decisions of human beings. So we're talking here about politics, um, above all, politics, military decisions, and so on. Humans, like all living organisms, are very unpredictable. So... We can be sure that if we keep pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, global temperatures will rise and we can estimate some of the consequences of that. What we cannot predict is what humans will do with that knowledge. So that's an example of, of one of the basic principles of future thinking. You look into the past, you look at processes, you try to identify the most regular processes because they allow some confidence in prediction, whereas the less regular processes don't. And, and in the book, I, I suggest it may be helpful to think about a sort of um, a spectrum with four positions on it. There's nothing that we can predict with absolute certainty, although there are some things we can predict with a lot of confidence. I, I predict the government will try and tax me. I predict that I will die. <laughs> I predict that the sun will rise tomorrow. So um, we could predict some things with, with such confidence that we'd put a lot of money on them. So that's the most confident area. And the same, incidentally, I think is true about the relationship between increasing greenhouse gases and global temperatures. Um, but then there's a whole range of things that are, are, those are probable. There's a whole range of things that are plausible. And then there's things that are possible. They could happen, but we really don't have much clue. And then finally, there's a range of things. It's, it's not worth thinking about because we really have no clues at all. So that, I think, is the fundamental technique. You look in the past and you classify processes by how regular they are, and you look at the most regular processes because they can provide they can provide um, the best evidence about what is most likely to happen. Um, people who bet on the horses, which I don't do, I think probably understand this principle pretty well. Um, yeah. 
I love that. I think that there's a, so it's like, yeah, you look at the past and, and then some of these processes, and it seems like, especially some of the processes that are the result of, um, yeah, when they get closer to the biological and physical substrates, they might be um, more likely to be regular, especially at these like macro scales, like tectonic plates will still do their thing. And um, the, uh, you know, the moon will keep rotating and the climate change will happen and all these CO2 things. But then you kind of start with that. And then that kind of is the foundation to make these other predictions. So that that kind of makes sense. What I want to do now maybe is um, chat about kind of how you've broken up the book, because I actually think it's really interesting. Um, Your part one is thinking about the future, how philosophers, scientists and living living organisms do it. Um, So tell me a little bit about that chapter. And it's like how different whether organisms or scientists of people, how they think about the future. Yeah, I, I think of the book as as about we, we if you look inside your own head, you'll watch stories. It's full of stories about possible futures. Some are fantasies, but some are some are quite serious, some are scary. Um and I think of the book really is about different types of stories, how we construct them, how we put them together. So that the first part is ask the question what do we mean by the future? What is the future? And it, it it begins by looking at the philosophy and science of time and the theology of time, because theologians like St. Augustine thought very deeply about the nature of time. Is time created by God? Does God know everything that's going to happen in the future? Does that mean that the whole everything is predetermined? And does that mean we have no choice and therefore no morality? So these are interesting theological questions as well. But what's fascinating is that the philosophy and science of time is, well, the way I put it in the book is to say, it, if, you, if you go into it, it's a bit like walking into a jungle. You're going to find all sorts of spooky things and philosophical creepy crawlies. Um, and we don't really understand what we mean by time. Is it just a label for change? Is it a dimension of the universe? Um, how does it operate? So, so that section of the book um, just dips into the jungle of the philosophy of time, but it draws out of that journey really two fundamental images of time. One is time as a river, and that's a sort of that's like our everyday experience. We we feel something like a flow, we feel change, and that is philosophers know it as a series time. After a famous article published in 1908. Uh, in in A-series time, the future is very different from the past. The future is dark, the past we can see, but the present is the only moment in which we exist. So there's a huge difference between future, present, and past. But then if you think about A-series time, it leads to lots of paradoxes. Like, so if we don't know what the future is, does that mean there are multiple futures coming towards us? And only one of them survives in the present moment. How does that process happen? There are so many paradoxes that many philosophers prefer a second idea of time, which is time as a sort of map. Um, And in B-series time, this is time as a map. You can think of time as a kind of line. And B-series time is, is really like a map. So 
the future is like the past. There's not that much difference between future, present and past. They're just different places on a map. And that hints at the weird idea that hovers around B-series time that maybe the map already exists so that the entire future, everything is already laid out and we live in a deterministic universe. So those are two sort of ideas about time that that are a way into thinking about it, but they don't solve our problems about time. Yeah, I love it. I think, um, and I think it's a cool perspective where it's like, hey, in order to think about the future, we need to think about time. And so let's think about time. And I think those two visuals, I think you do a great job of outlining them. And yeah, the time as a river, yeah, they are, they're very different. I think that the time as a map is, yeah, it gets into various quantum worlds and the Marvel multiverse and stuff like that. But there is some truth to it of like, there is, whether it is, um, the map is already laid out or whether it's just thinking about all these possible parallel futures. I think, I guess I find myself like thinking more of time as a map than time as a river. Um, so let's, let's go to part two here, which I think is also really interesting, which is, you know, part two is called managing futures, you know, how bacteria, plants and animals do it. So tell us how like existing organisms already think about managing the future. Right. Well, the, the, um, the payoff really to chapter one is that, the idea of time, we we haven't really made sense of it. It's it's kind of crazy, but you can shift your perspective and you can ask a second second question, which is not what is time, but how can we deal with whatever it is we think of as the future. So that's a more practical question, and um, to solve the practical question, you don't need a complete resolution to the philosophy of time. You just have to deal with it. So, so, so the book then moves on to really how living organisms deal with time and with the uncertainty of the future. Because whether it's predetermined or not, for every living organism, it's uncertain. It may be ignorance, although modern science suggests that the uncertainty is real. It's part of the, universe, the way the universe works. There's, there's some wriggle room. There's what William James calls some loose play on the parts in the universe. So, so then the, the second, really the second part of the book is how living organisms do it. And we have to start at the cellular level. And the reason is very simple. It's that all of our future thinking is the combined result of trillions of cells, each of which is taking, is doing things, it's taking actions on the basis of something that we can call predictions about the future. All living organisms, they're different from non-living things in the sense that they don't just accept whatever happens to them. It's as if they try to navigate. They try to make use of that loose play in the universe because they know that some futures are good Futures in which they survive and reproduce, and some are not. So natural selection has built into every organism, starting with single cells, fantastically complex and beautiful mechanisms for learning about what's outside them. So they have ways of sensing what's going on, for exploring alternative scenarios, ways that this may play out, and then finally for acting. So those are the crew, three crucial things. Information about the world, scenarios about how they may, how those trends 
may play out in the future. And finally, the ability to act. And even bacteria do that. So chapter two, the, the, the hero of chapter two is E. coli, <laughs> E. coli bacteria. But then chapter, chapter three, uh, I think I hope I've got that right. <laughs> Chapter three goes on to talk about multicellular organisms. And there's a lovely, um, if you'll forgive me, there's a, there's a lovely metaphor for the world today in moving from single cells to multicelled organisms, because multicelled organisms appeared on Earth quite late within the last billion years. Before that, there were hardly any. And the great challenge for multicelled organisms is collaboration. So you find that multicell the cells in multicelled organisms have a lot of kind of molecular gadgets and a lot of genetic gadgets that single cell organ organisms don't have. All those gadgets are about how to collaborate with other cells. So in other words, if we're now part of a superorganism, how can we work together best to ensure the survival of this superorganism? Now, I hope it's obvious that is a wonderful metaphor for the world we live in today. We know that single-celled organisms eventually manage to communicate, to share information, to take collective decisions, and they're doing it every second of our lives in our bodies. Can we do it as human beings? So, so chapter two is really about how large organisms think about the future, how plants do it, um, and how animals, which have nervous systems, do it. Yeah, I love it. I think that there's, well, A, I think this is such a powerful, this is why I think it's great. I mean, to have a historian in the room, you know, where it's like, okay, great, let's think about the future and let's do it in a more rigorous way where we know that our thinking about the future is based in how organisms in general think about the future. And I really like what you said there. And it's, you know, it's similar to, um, you know, Carl Friston's free energy principle and trying to stay in a non-equilibrium steady state, or as you call it, like a loose play, you know, of like, hey, the fish wants to be kind of in the water. And so it has to, it has to prefer certain futures over others. And then in order to do that, yeah, you need to be, you need to both take input and do an, an act. But then the middle ground there is you need to um, think about these possible futures that could exist. And instead of um, being an organism that just says, I'm going to go do this thing. No, you have to let the ideas themselves do the dying. And then the natural selection is in the ideas and these possible predictions instead of in yourself. Um, and I think what you've said there is brilliant too about the um, thing about ourselves, think about how multicellular organisms uh, collaboratively think about the future and how we might apply those for humanity. How is there anything we can learn from multicellular organisms on how we should do it? <laughs> yeah, look, I think I think absolutely. I mean, it's 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 just a metaphor and it's a very simple one, but we know the things you need to do if millions of organisms find themselves so interdependent that the future of each individual depends on the survival of the whole thing, then certain rules follow. One is each individual has to play its own role. It has to share information with others. So all large organisms have information sharing mechanisms. It has to collaborate with others. And finally, they need some sort of method for taking executive decisions. That is the big decisions that will shape the future of the entire organism. Now, in organisms like plants, 
you don't you can't actually point to a single executive the executive decisions emerge from flows of lots of information from different parts of the plant but in animals yes we can identify it it's it's in the brain it's where you have this sort of massive concentration of neurons which are the cells that specialize in communication in sharing information um so that that what happens in in large organisms is that most of the detailed decisions about the future are taken at the cellular level you know individual cells will decide to repair themselves to pass on um hormonal messages to other cells and things like that that's going on all the time but the big decisions um do i um <clears throat> you know do do i board a plane do i wear a mask uh, in at, at this this concert uh, those are taken at the at the executive level so you need some organism that allows billions of cells to collaborate now again the analogy with the modern world is very very clear indeed um we are now in a situation and it's happened quite suddenly within the last 100 200 years we're now in a situation where what happens in one part of the world affects what happens in other parts of the world and in fact where the survival of individuals is increasingly dependent on the success of the whole thing and that means that thinking tribally is becoming is beginning to look not like a survival method for your tribe but a form of suicide for the larger organism of which of which every tribe is a part uh, and that's what makes every war in the modern world so tragic and and so dangerous um we desperately need to be building new mechanisms but th- the optimistic thing is if you look around you you can see them emerging you can be as cynical as you like about the united nations but the existence of an organization like that with all its sort of peripherals is an astonishing thing in human history um the and the, the the large number of uh organizations devoted to relations between nations is also astonishing and and mechanisms like the internet now allow a sharing of information that it was is completely unprecedented so we can see these processes happening yeah i love that i think that there's a um one thing i love a couple things there one is yeah what role do you play are you a skin cell are you a heart cell are you you know where do you fit in or are you a podcaster are you an engineer are you an artist you know like so finding your role in the networked human organism and then as you say there such a crucial thing the info sharing you know if if for us as humans we're getting all this information from our senses all the time our our eyes are getting stuff we're hearing things and then all kind of comes together into our brains and then as you say our brains are the executive um piece there and then kind of push it back out and say okay let's take this action as a, as a crew um and so i just think there's a lot as you say some good overlap there and i think that it's good to highlight some of the specifics where you want you know something like the un is you know can be people hate on it and whatever for various reasons but it is these attempts of like how can we like actually think about the whole and how can we do this information sharing piece and i guess i would just say also to our listeners is like when you think about ways to operate from the future in mind where you're like hey let's let we're operating for the whole of all of humanity and all of society 
think about, I think for me, the easiest one is just like information sharing, like make the stuff that you do open and for the public and whatever. And then that allows the whole organism to kind of consume it if they want or to do something else with it if they want. And it kind of like, it allows without that information sharing, um, you kind of can have nothing else. So that's, that's for me, a a slight uh, takeaway. Let's move on to part three now, actually, which is, um, you know, preparing for futures, how humans do it. Um, So how to tell us more about that uh, chapter and what we can learn from it. Well, that actually, there's a, very link. there's a very close link between what you've just said and part three, which is, which is really about how humans think about the future. And the question is, is there any real difference between how humans think about the future and how antelopes or E. coli think about the future? And my argument will be, and this goes back to my work over many years in big history, that there is a profound difference in how humans think. And it goes back to collaboration because I've argued for many years. Now, not all historians agree with me, but I, I'm going to stick with the argument because I think it's a very powerful one that um, what makes us as a species distinctive, and we really are distinctive, we're the first species in four billion years in planetary history that has become so powerful that we are now changing the surface of planet Earth. That's something new in planetary history. And that's why we really do live at a turning point. So how do you explain this weird behavior by our species? And I actually think there's a very simple explanation. Um, It depends on our ability to communicate. Now, lots of organisms, lots of animals can communicate. Many animals have what we can call languages and even something like culture. But there's a kind of critical threshold beyond which your ability to communicate is so efficient and you communicate so much that the behavior of the whole species, community by community, begins to change over generations as new information accumulates. Now, that is what we are. We have crossed that threshold. And we're a species whose behavior is not ultimately limited by our genes, by our DNA. We have this capacity to build generation by generation, to build, to accumulate new information. And information gives you power over your surroundings. If I know how a plant works, I can know how to grow that plant better. So this is the source of the knowledge that makes us now, as this knowledge has accumulated faster and faster and faster, and astonishingly rapidly in recent centuries, um, we now have the knowledge needed to manipulate the entire planet. And that's what we're doing. Now, take going back to future, future thinking, uh, our future thinking is different, I think, precisely because we share information about the future. So when we're thinking about the future, we're not, we're not, it's not just me. It's not just the trends that I remember that allow me to think about possible futures. I can consult with millions of other people, many of them no longer alive. And together we can accumulate a vast amount of information about trends in the past and we can explore them with immense sophistication today using all the power of probability theory and computers 
to crunch that information so we can use past trends on a scale and with a precision and with a thoroughness that is utterly unimaginable for all other species and in fact was unimaginable even for our own species just just two or three thousand years ago so that i think is the crucial difference um and it's a reminder that if you're better at future thinking if you're better at manipulating your surroundings that is power and that's the power we humans exercise and of course it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing it could prove to be catastrophic because we have built weapons capable of dis- that's how powerful we are we built weapons capable of destroying much of planet earth within 24 hours will yeah. we use them that's yeah. a catastrophic outcome or if i talk about collective learning because that's the phrase i use to describe this capacity of humans to share information perhaps we're so good at it that we will figure out how to thread the needle and how to collaborate better in the future and actually manage planet earth sustainably in some way yeah i love that i think there's a and what i'm hearing from you is like yeah an individual organism what it does is it especially an individual uh, an animal that can do it but also you know single celled ones do this to some extent is like you push forward these possible predictions of the future and you're like oh which one should i do oh that one ends up with me dying uh, you know, let's not do that one. If I'm a fish, I don't want to be out of the water. Let's go this way instead. Um, and then, if, but for humans, as you said, we're not just purely constrained to our own brain and those own possible predictions of the future. It's like, what we can do is we can tap into the matrix of everybody else and say, how are other people, how is David thinking about the future? Oh, David kind of thinks that we're going to do biotechnology and that all have like these cool Google glasses or whatever. Um, and so you can kind of tap into other people's futures as a part of our process. So that that makes a lot of sense. And that you call it the um, collective learning Tell me, you know, you, you talked about the catastrophe on one side and the, you know, threading the needle on the other. Uh, for thread, tell us how to thread the needle. <laughs> what kinds of things might we need to do in order to make that collective learning process for good? Uh, well, in, in information first. Um, I mean, think of every time you go to a doctor. It's a wonderful example of collective learning. I go to the doctor because the doctor is aware of trends, ways of managing those trends that I'm not aware of, and they will affect my health. They will have a profound, profound effect on me. So knowledge is absolutely crucial. Um, and I, I go back to climate change. Um, having had a, a scrumptious one-year-old granddaughter in my house for the last year, I think a lot about her future. Um, when I was a kid, we knew nothing about climate change. So there was nothing to stop us just pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as much as we liked. Now we've learned something about it. Um, and we've learned that it would be very smart to slow down and perhaps stop pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So information is absolutely crucial. But of course, the second thing is um, collaboration. Uh, a, a willingness to collaborate. And that will depend, I think, very much on a growing awareness of our global interdependence. The fact that uh, my granddaughter's future is not going to look great if we keep fighting each other 
uh, as we did in the past, but using the weaponry available, um, you know, in the in the twenty first century. So those are those are two of the crucial things, and and both of them depend on careful, sophisticated future thinking. Um, we're we're we are now so powerful that we are managing an entire planet. Now that's a fantastically complex, sophisticated thing. We will need all the information we have in order to, in order to do it well. Um, but in the meantime, I think you know just um, information about our interdependence, the extent of our interdependence, um, the fact that that a better future. We we can now see aspects of the future that we couldn't see in the past, and climate change is 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 a wonderful example of that. And we need to take that information very seriously if we care about the future of future generations. And there's one more thing I should add to this: that one crucial aspect of future thinking is what I call utopian thinking, imagining good futures. So you have a target. Um, so I think one of the things we need to spend a bit uh, more time working on is carefully imagining the sort of futures we want for planet Earth if our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are to live well. And at the moment, there's lots of we see lots of dystopias because it's much more fun talking about nasty things <laughs> than, than, than good things. But I think we need a, to spend a lot more time thinking about what a sustainable world really might look like. Not a perfect sustainable world, not a kind of Pollyanna world, but a, but a, um, a world in which the life chances of most human beings are maximized, are, are as good as they can be in 100 years' time or 200 years' time. Yeah, I love that. I think, and before I talk about that, popping off the stack to the things you said initially, which is like, the crucial things that we need to be able to do are a the knowledge piece and it's like we have this planetary scale computation what benjamin bratton calls it where we can, we actually have and there's this company planet labs which is all these satellites in the world to track um land use and climate change and all those things and then we have you know a company like flexport that's doing a bunch of the supply chain tracking and stuff and so like we have this global scale um analysis of where all the atoms are not exactly of course but but slightly and so knowing that knowledge is crucial and sharing the ways to kind of to shape it and then as you said there the collaboration piece obviously is like for us to go within ourselves and to kind of um, self-domesticate even more and only compete in some small things like sports, you know, but have the rest of society like competing in politics in the way we're doing it now, probably not positive. And so finding ways through that collaboration piece um, seems crucial. And then as you say there, I think, you know, um, in order to kind of supercharge that, we can give ourselves our own information about interdependence where it's like, don't forget, like we're all connected in these ways. And even just like, you know, memeing us and getting us into those mindsets of how interdependent we are, I think is really amazing. And COVID kind of gave us that in, in a serious way, which is great. But then the final one that I just so agree with that you just said, there's like having the target. And, and I think about it as um, if we go back to the um, uh, analogy of the organisms and organisms are doing this kind of um, modeling of the future. And then what they do is they kind of model a possible future and then they, they try to make themselves equal to that future. They say, okay, if I'm a fish and I should be in water, oh, great. This is what it looks like to be in water. And when I'm not doing that, I have to kind of nudge myself towards there. And I think for us as humans, 
in addition to these like negative scenarios, the dystopias, we need to have these you know specific, positive, realistic, but still flourishing futures that we can point and go, are we there yet? Oh no, we're not quite there yet. Let's kind of like nudge ourselves to get closer to that because it'll make our kind of um, our minds that like to do prediction and stuff. It'll make us like self-fulfilling prophecy into that future. So totally agree with all of that. I want to transition now to part four actually, which is this imagining futures section, um, the human astronomical and cosmological. And you talk about you know near futures in the next hundred years, middle futures with like the human lineage and then remote futures for the rest of time. Tell us a little bit about, because I think when most people think about the future, it's like what's happening in the next 20 years. So tell us about this kind of final chapter and what we can, or the final part and what we can learn from it. Yeah, um, of course, you know, here, here I'm, I'm joining a huge crowd of people who, who are talking about near futures. And I, I'm really trying to sort of pick out some of the crucial ideas that we need in thinking about the next hundred years. The, the, the last three chapters, as you say, the first looks at the next hundred years or so. The, the one after that looks at the next few thousand or even million years. And then the, the other one looks at the rest of the universe. So this first chapter... Um, one of the distinctive things about the next hundred years is that we care about it um, because we will we will know or have some sort of strong connection with people who will live in that future so so it it matters to us in a in a sense that other other futures don't taking you know taking the principles that I talked about in earlier chapters seriously means that um, to think seriously about the next hundred years. We have to look at trends. Now, if you're thinking about long futures, say, 100 years away, it's no good looking at minute by minute trends. It's no long, no good looking at the sort of trends that, that a stockbroker will, will be interested in. You have to look at long trends. Now, that's where big history really comes in. So what sort of so, so that chapter begins by asking about, well, it begins by asking about where we would like to be. Um, and and arguing that there actually is a pretty broad global consensus about many aspects of what a good future will look like, and and the best summary of them is probably the global sustainability um, uh, documents produced by the United Nations. There's a, there is a broad consensus about where we want to be. Secondly. You need to know where you want to go. Second, you need to study the trends about where you're likely to be able to go. And then the third thing you do is you try to split the difference. You try to use the loose play on the universe to steer as close as possible to where you'd like to be. So the second thing is to study long trends, very long trends. And that's why big history is relevant and collective learning. So there's a trend. It's a trend that you can see throughout human history. It's a slow, accelerating accumulation of information, first community by community, then eventually region by region, and now globally. So if we're facing huge challenges, the good news is that we are accumulating more and more knowledge about how we might face them. I mean, I think about the knowledge we had about the future when I was a kid. It's utterly different. Um, environmental issues are taken seriously throughout the world. Not seriously enough, but they're taken seriously throughout the world and, and many other important issues. 
So, um, and all the best, the best predictors of the near future do exactly this. I went back and looked at the limits to growth literature, going back to 1972, when the first limits to growth um, book was published, based on what now looked like very crude computer models of the future. The remarkable thing is how much they got right uh, using those models. And those models, you put in information about trends and you you create computer scenarios about where things might be going. Um, So that's the second thing, looking at trends. Um, And that that means looking at various scenarios, various possible futures. And I talk about four possible futures. One is catastrophic. Um, and it's, it's, it could happen. Um, nuclear war, uh, a pandemic that literally wipes out the species. That's a possibility. It's probably one of the less likely possibilities, though. Um, then there are possibilities. There are several other scenarios that I look at, including the most optimistic which is that we learn how to collaborate. There will be wars, there will be conflicts, there will be, um, you know, back steps. But, but that within a hundred years, we think of ourselves as a global species. We understand that our challenge is to manage the earth in ways that allow a good future for humans and also for other species, because without other species, we can't have a good future. Um, and then the, the, the final thing, of course, is to act. So you, you figure out where you want to go. All organisms do this. You get ideas about likely trends, and then finally you act. You take decisions, and you act in ways to steer your little rowing boat towards the currents you want to travel in. Um, and and I, I end by talking about some of the actions. Well, we actually know them. Um, it, the United Nations, the, I, the International Panel on, on Climate Change, we know what, what needs to be done. Um, and I, I've talked so much about climate change, but of course there are many other areas such as inequality, um, you know, gender inequalities, inequalities between countries, between races that, 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 that need to be tackled as well. Um, so the final final step is to act. And and I talk about some of the crucial actions. And there I'm, I don't claim to be very original because I actually think we already know what needs to be done. The big question is whether we will, whether we, is the politics um, yeah. Will we get the politics right? And that is one of those domains where prediction is peculiarly difficult. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that there's, I mean, I, I agree with you, which is it's mapping the previous chapters into this chapter, which is like, you want, you need to understand uh, where you want to go. Then you kind of produce some trends and be like, okay, here's, here's um, these other things that might be battling, you know, battering us or whatever. And then you say, okay, let's act uh, towards this direction to kind of move the rowboat. Uh, the thing that is, you know, I'm, I'm, I want I want to kind of um, push you on that final piece, though, which is like, like you said, we kind of know where we want to go, which is these, you know, sustainable to get development goals, the SDGs or, you know, the IPCC, they put out like, hey, we're trying to get our climate targets to this thing. And I don't know. But, and as you said there, there's like the politics piece, which is we need to um, 
and you know we're in whether you want to call it some weird kind of market system where the you know the capitalist incentives keep people within oil and climate or maybe or sorry within within oil and fossil fuels or maybe you think that we're not innovating enough and that we have too much of a vitocracy where you know politics kind of push down um, the, the the actions of these possibly innovative companies that would actually be able to get us to to carbon neutral futures. I guess I just want to push you and maybe double click on that that question, which is, okay, we know where we want to go and some of the actions, we kind of know what we need to do-ish in order to like get more people out of poverty or whatever. But like, is there is there more that you can say there about like how we would like do the politics right or like actually like get to the SDGs or some of these goals that we have? Uh, look, I mean, this is this is why this idea that, one of the basic principles of future thinking is you look for regular trends, but you're also sensitive to less regular trends. And when we think about the next hundred years, we can identify a lot of regular trends. And the, there we can say, if we do this, that will happen. Um, but politics belongs to one of these kind of middle domains where um, prediction is peculiarly difficult. Um, and that's why all of these debates are really so fraught. But but there's one final idea that I think is relevant to all of this. Oh, and I should go back a step and say, I, I said, we know where we need to go. Now, that was that was oversimple, because, of course, there's there's still a huge amount of disagreement about the details of policy. But nevertheless, if you look for it, there is a very broad consensus on the general direction we would like to go. Um, but the final, the final weapon in all of this, I think, is optimism. If you don't, if you decide it's impossible to get there, well, first, we can never be certain that it's impossible to get there. If you decide that, it demotivates and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So optimism itself is a crucial tool in all of this. And that's why it is so important that um, we collectively spend a huge amount of time trying to imagine what a more sustainable world will look like and trying to think about the steps needed to get there. Now, again, the good news is there's a fantastic amount of research and scholarship and entrepreneurial activity that's devoted just to these questions that's going on. Will it be enough? Um, this is where the politics comes in, because politics is such a powerful lever for encouraging investment, for example. I, I watched this very closely in Australia, where we actually had a carbon tax 12 years ago. And then a climate skeptic government came in, abolished the, abolished the carbon tax, and you saw, you saw money fleeing sustainable technologies in which Australia actually had some very sophisticated research and, and entrepreneurial activity going on. So, so I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, um, uh, Rice. But, it's good. But, but anyway, the payoff to all of that, I think, is that optimism itself is a tool for 
getting to a good future. If you don't believe you can get there, you won't get there. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, the classic, it's, you know, the, like the, the techno utopian version of this is, you know, the best way to predict the future is to build it, you know, or you're, you're sitting and you're like, okay, if we're trying to get here, we actually have to believe we can get there. And we're going to do a bunch of hard work in order to like make that future happen and do the R and D work and do the stuff and do the politics and all that to make it happen. So well, can I um, add one more thing that, yeah. that it, such a such a future outcome should not be regarded as fantastic. If mm -hmm. you look at the past on a scale of two or three hundred years, you think of the world three hundred years ago, you think where it is now, the changes are mind blowing, absolutely staggering. So um, we should not be overly cynical uh, on these things. We really should. Uh, expect to see brand new unexpected technologies uh, coming in. They won't solve all our problems, but new initiatives, new politics. Yeah, I love so it. I think that, no, no, that's great. It's because like, yeah, it's like, hey, it's not like there's some crazy pie in the sky, Pollyannish future there. It's like, no, we've done so, I mean, we got electricity, we got washers and dryers, we got microwaves, you can microwave a burrito. It's so amazing in a minute and it's hot and it's in your mouth. It's like, so there's so many amazing, we've, we've, we don't do slavery anymore. We don't, you know, the, like there's obviously a lot of problems, but like saying, okay, great. What can we actually do if we all work hard in this next you know bit of time, I think is, um, it's totally reasonable and it's, and, and we can get there. So I love that. Um, as we wrap here, David, um, yeah, so A, for our listeners, um, yeah, I think this is a great just reminder of how it's, you know, how important it is to kind of think big picture when you're thinking about the future and to take a step back and understand how these things possibly could happen and to kind of, and, and I recommend you can go to, yeah, it came out, uh, you know, uh, June 7th, which is as we're recording this podcast today, um, the Future Stories book. I really, I loved Origin Story, David's first book, and this sounds, just hearing the chapters and I haven't finished yet, but it's like, so many juicy topics and so many like patterns and processes that you clearly lay out there, which I'm really excited to dive into. So recommending that to readers. Is there anything else you want to say to our readers, David, um, as, as we kind of wrap up this podcast? Oh, well, um, do it. I had such fun writing the book, uh, mainly because because there are so few general books for the general user on the on the future, um, and I, and I hope it, it it does provide some insight into the future. A very spooky topic indeed uh, for the general general reader. I love it. Yeah. And I think, and David, you have a great, and this is why I think you've been a great steward of the big history project and catalyst of that at the beginning, because your enthusiasm and excitement kind of comes through, which in a beautiful way. And I think that, yeah, for the the, the, the listeners, it's like, wow, here's a book that you can actually um, grab a hold of that. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, it's like these techno utopian versions, but it's like, this is less techno utopian still has this idea that we need to build, but is coming from a more kind of um, wide scope. So with that, David, Thank you again for coming on the show um, and goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Reese Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.